Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's so good to see all of you here. Wow, the, the church really seems full this morning, man, compared to what it's been. That's just great. Uh, if you're visiting with us, either in person, online, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, just to give you a little sense of where we've been, if you've tra- been tracking with us, we've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, kind of slowly making our way through, taking some stops here and there to kind of dig into certain issues we come across in the book. And, and uh, really, that's kind of what we're doing today. Last week, one of the issues we ran into in 1 Corinthians 11 is really the roles of women and men in marriage and the church and how all that was being worked out in the Corinthian church, uh, in the church community there. And so uh, we wanted to take a pit stop and take a couple weeks to really dig more into this issue of particularly women's roles, um, since that's become a kind of a hot-button topic, if you will. Uh, so uh, we're going to be looking at two uh, passages today, uh, Genesis 2, uh, 18 through 24, and Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. Uh, so if you have a Bible or your Bible app, you can turn there, or we'll be putting the verses up on the screen, and you can track along with us that way as well. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to listen to some of the testimony of some of the um, female gymnasts before Congress that uh, went through really years of abuse as part of their involvement in the American gymnastics team. And it was just really heart-wrenching to see, um, you know, just hear their stories and how for years they suffered this. And you could just see the pain and the damage and the hurt that this experience caused and how it affected them. But I think the thing that struck me most was how the FBI, that even though these allegations were brought to them in great detail, the callousness of the FBI in just dismissing and not doing anything to investigate and even look into these things for over 15 months. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, this is just one of many situations over the past few years that has really exposed some of the unfairness and mistreatment that women experience in our American culture. And these realities that we've kind of seen in these years, they've only heightened what was already this hot-button issue involving the roles and rights of women in our society. And the pressures to eliminate unfairness and mistreatment of women have not only been felt in our culture, but they've been felt in the church as well. And as a result, many churches have taken really a fresh, hard, sober look at how women are treated and valued in the church community. And by and large, I think this has been a good thing as churches have sought to reevaluate and clarify their views and practices in this area. And many have taken a fresh look at the Bible's teaching on this topic to make sure they're understanding and applying the scriptures soundly. But the good desire to eliminate practices where women are undervalued or treated unfairly in Christian practice and Christian community. 
it can often bleed over into a pressure to eliminate the distinctives between men's and women's roles altogether. In other words, any role distinctions are just viewed as another example of that unfairness and mistreatment that women experience at the hands of men. And so there can be a lot of hostility from the culture and even from within the church towards this idea of are there distinctions in roles between men and women. And, you know, controversy over the roles of men and women in the home and in the church, it's not new to the church. It's been around for decades. Um, and there are two primary views uh, kind of in this area of, of women's roles. One would be called kind of the egalitarian view. And that view simply says that men and women, they are equal and worth, significance, being, essence, value, and there are no distinctions in roles at all. They are equal in role as well, so anything a man can do, a woman can do, a woman can be a pastor, can be anything. There's no distinction of roles in the home. The other view is what's called a complementarian view, and a complementarian view says that while women and men are equally made in God's image, they are equal in value and worth and significance, and, uh, but they are distinct. They have distinct and God's designed marriage and the church where men and women have some distinctions in role. And while the controversy around roles has been going on in the church for a long time, I think the events over the last few years have only really increased the pressure on, ch on churches who would hold a complementarian position to really reconsider and, and abandon that view. And so in light of all the attention and the focus on this area and really questions we were getting from people in the church about these things, about two years ago, before the pandemic hit, as a pastoral team, we decided to take a fresh look at the Bible's teaching on this topic and our church practice as well. And we, we just wanted to make sure the way we understood the scripture was as sound as we could possibly be, and that the way we were applying these things in church practice and life was faithful and balanced properly as well. And our intent was back then that we were going to do a, a short series on this at that time, and then the pandemic hit. And so... We decided to wait and hold off upon it and cover it when we hit this part of 1 Corinthians when the topic came up there. So let me tell you a little bit about the process that we use, because this would be typical of the process we use as a pastoral team when we're wrestling through doctrinal or theological issues. Uh, the first thing we do is we kind of study the scriptures and get together and we discuss our understanding of them. And then we look at the best arguments on both sides of the issue. Uh, and there are respectable scholars on both sides of this issue that would be respectable egalitarian scholars and respectable complementarian scholars. And in this particular case, there was a book that we used, and I have a slide uh, of that, 
uh, called Women in Ministry. And it, what this is, it's a really good book. It just kind of has four different perspectives on this, a more liberal egalitarian view, a more moderate egalitarian view, a more moderate complementarian view, and a more conservative complementarian view. So just a good spectrum of well-respected people who presented their arguments uh, on this issue. And so we use that book, we evaluate the arguments against the scriptural evidence and support, and then we weigh the biblical evidence on both sides. And that's really what you have to do in these kind of issues because if they were so clear, there'd be no debate, right? And so because there's debate around these things, you have to kind of weigh the evidence for both sides of the argument. And, and, and so our goal as a team is to come to a consensus on what we believe the scriptural evidence best supports. And so after taking many hours to work through this process as a team, we would clearly come down on the side of being complementarian in our position. In other words, we believe that while women are perfectly equal in value and role and being and essence and significance and importance and everything, that there are distinctions that God has designed in roles, particularly in marriage and in the church. And we hold that position humbly. We recognize that there are people who disagree, and it's not our intent to make this a divisive issue between us and others who would think differently. But we do hold it with conviction. In other words, this is our best understanding of what we believe the Scripture teaches. And so that conviction will shape how we as a pastoral team lead and you know, ministry and activity here at Grace Community. Uh, so today and next Sunday, I want to dive a little deeper into this topic of women's roles in marriage and in the church, and really just take an opportunity to present to you some of the biblical basis and arguments for our view, or how we came to this view, and also some clarification on how we see this being applied in the life and ministry of the church. Uh, and so one of the things we're going to do, because there's so much more than we can cover on this topic in just a couple messages, uh, but we're also going to do a Grace at the Table um, panel discussion next week after the service on this topic. And so if you, you know, if you have questions about things that are talked about in these messages, or if you just have questions in general, please feel free to text those in. And uh, we, the number's on the screen there, and we will do our best to try to get to those in those panel discussions so that we can touch on those issues. So today, I want to kind of focus in on roles in marriage. And I want to do that by looking at just two key passages of Scripture in Genesis 2, 18 through 24, and Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. And then next week... We'll look at the role of women in the church and how that works out in church life and ministry. So before we dig into these passages, let's take a moment and ask God for his help. Well, Lord, as we come to you, Lord, uh, Lord, you created men and women, and you designed them for your glory. And Lord, you, you created marriage. And you designed that for your glory and our good. And so, Lord, help us this morning as we look at your word and try to understand and discern from what you have told us there, your intent and purpose in these things. 
So, Lord, we ask that you would grant the presence of your spirit here today and that you would just bless this time and that your good purposes would be accomplished in our lives and in this church. So we commit this to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So first point I want to just look at is the design of marriage. And so really, the place to begin in understanding God's design for roles in marriage is with God's creation and design of marriage in Genesis. So I want to start, before we go to Genesis 2, just briefly take a moment and look at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Let's read that together. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So just several brief things to note from this passage. In verse 26, at the beginning of that verse, it says, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. And the our here refers, I think, to the Trinity, the persons of the Godhead. And so this is the Trinity making man in, in somehow in this Trinitarian image. So God's design for men and women reflects something about God's Trinitarian nature. And if you think about the Trinity, the Trinity is this mysterious picture of God being three in one, where he is one God, fully united in essence and being, yet three persons, each equally God, but distinct in role and function. And so there seems to be something about that Trinitarian reality that is reflected in God's design for men and women. And then verse 27 really focuses on the equality of the two. Both male and female are equally created in God's image. They both share the same value, significance, and equality of being as both are made in the very image of God. And verses 26 and 28 tell us that they're equally given dominion over the earth to rule and subdue it. And, you know, this really causes us to be cautious about extending role distinctives to the arenas of work and politics and other areas outside of marriage in the church. Because men and women are both charged with ruling over the earth and subduing it for God's purposes. And the Bible just does not speak to any distinctions in those other arenas in any direct way. And there are many biblical examples of women in significant leadership roles in those arenas. Women like Miriam, Moses' sister, Deborah, Esther, the Queen of Sheba, and so on. 
And so while Genesis 1, 26 through 28, describes the creation of man and woman as both made in God's image, equal in essence and being and value, when we come to Genesis 2, 18 through 24, what the writer does is he takes that creation account and he changes the angle of our view, if you will, to zoom in and show us God's creation and design for marriage within that account. And it's here that we begin to see the clues that while men and women are equally made in God's image, equal in being, value, and significance, mutually charged to rule over and steward God's creation on earth, But when it comes to marriage and family and the home, there is a distinction in roles in God's design. So let's look at this Genesis 2, 18 through 24 passage. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we can see that this passage is really all about God's design for marriage because it begins in verse 18 with it's not good for the man to be alone. And then it ends in verse 24 with the idea that a man shall leave his father and mother and... uh, Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is all about marriage. This is God's design for marriage. And there are three things that I think we just want to note from this text. Uh, And the first one is in verse 18, uh, when God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. One of the things that that tells us is that Adam was made first. And Adam being made first is significant in this account because in the culture of that day, the firstborn had a special leadership role and responsibility in the family and the home. And so if we see Adam as the firstborn of God's creation of people, it would seem to imply a leadership role and responsibility on his part. Secondly, In verse 18, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Same word is used in verse 20. And the word helper here is the Hebrew word azar or ezar, depending on how you pronounce it. And it has this idea of a helpmate suitable to him. 
One who comes alongside and compliments him. One who is fit for him. And so she is different than him and supports and helps him in some way. Now this same word, this same word helper that we would uh, translate helper is used of God in a number of places through the Bible. God is often referred to as Israel's helper. And so if we think of that, that this is a description of that this word is used to describe God's helping Israel, there's certainly no l- distinction of value or importance. You know, there's no lesser, you know, there's nothing demeaning about being this kind of helper if God is this kind of helper. But this same word, is it's used of humans, too, to describe those in subordinate roles who help or assist in some way. And so the use of the word in Genesis 2, it's not completely conclusive, but seems to imply a complementary supporting role in this context. And then thirdly, in verses 19 and 20, Adam is charged with naming all the animals God made, which is really an indication of his leadership role and responsibility over the created order. And so in verse 23, when God makes the woman, he brings her to Adam, who also names her. And his role in naming her speaks to his leadership role in marriage and the family. And so as we move through the next chapter or so, which describes their disobedience to God and the fall, we see other indications of Adam's kind of leadership role. Even though Eve initiates the disobedience to God in the garden, it was Adam that God first came to about it. In Genesis 3.9, when God comes down to address them on what they've done, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And when God pronounces judgment on the man and woman, part of the curse of their judgment for what they've done is in Genesis 3.16, he tells her, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." but he shall rule over you. See, sin will cause her to resist and strive against his leadership role, and sin will cause him to use his God-given leadership responsibility and authority in the marriage to rule selfishly and at times harshly over her. And so the fall and the curse associated with it, they didn't create role distinctions in marriage and the family, but it distorted them and turned them into something that would be a struggle rather than the blessing they were created to be. And so these things all point to God's purposeful design of marriage, that while men and women are equal in value and significance and being as God's image bearers, there are distinct roles that each of them have in marriage and the family, where the man has a God-given leadership role and responsibility, and the woman a complementary but no less valuable supportive and helping role in a marriage relationship. And so these distinctions in role in no way are intended to diminish 
or add to the importance or value or significance of either one. They represent God's wise design for the harmonious, smooth functioning of the marriage relationship in the family. Because really, if you think about it, marriage is a team effort, right? And if you think about teams, the way teams work is not everybody on a team does the same thing. That's not much of a team. If everybody on a team has the same role, you really don't have the effect of a team. The very nature of a team is that people have different roles on that team. We see that reality all, all around us in the world we live in. We see it in sports, for example. You know, if you have a basketball team, you have a point guard who has responsibility to, to direct the offense, call the plays, but that point guard is no more important or valuable than any other player on that team. They just have a different role. Now, I want to say that those who hold an egalitarian view would raise counterarguments against all the points I just made from this passage. And they would say that none of these points are conclusive in themselves. And that's a fair argument. But perhaps the strongest evidence for the validity of a complementarian framework in this Genesis account is really the way the later biblical writers would affirm this. I mean, we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul is talking to the, to the church there about how men and women should conduct themselves in the church and how women should honor the authority and leadership of their husbands in the way they live that out. In 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, what does Paul appeal to as a justification for that? It's this Genesis account where he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And in 1 Timothy 2, where he's made doing a similar kind of argument about roles in the church, he again uses this Genesis account to justify why there are some distinctions in roles in the church. In 1 Timothy 2.13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And if you think about it, as you, throughout the Bible... Who is it that's considered responsible for sin coming into the world? It's always Adam. You know, the Bible always holds Adam responsible for sin coming into the world, even though it was Eve who initiated that act of disobedience in the garden. See, the biblical writers certainly seem to see a distinction in roles and leadership responsibility in that Genesis account of God's design for marriage. But perhaps the clearest picture of what marriage and the roles of husband and wife are to look like is found in Ephesians 5. And so that brings us to the second point that I want to look at this morning, and that is just the picture of marriage. So I want to look at Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. It's a little long, but I want to begin a few verses ahead just to give you a better sense of the context here. So he, Paul says in, in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, for those who would hold an egalitarian point of view, verse 21 is a real key part of their argument. Because verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so their argument goes, there it is right there. There is this mutual submission where husband and wife both submit to one another. And so there's no distinction in roles here. There is to be this mutual submission between the two of them, each to the other. And then they would say that verses 22 through 33, the rest of that passage, describe that mutual submission between husband and wife. But is that really a proper understanding of what verse 21 means and what Paul is saying here? And I don't believe that it is. And I want to give you five kind of brief reasons why I believe that verse 21 doesn't mean a mutual submission in the marriage relationship. So hang on here. Number one is just the use of the word itself, the word submit itself in this passage. And it's used four times in this passage. And the, the Greek word is hypotasso. And it means to subordinate, to put oneself under, to be subject to, or to be in subjection under. And it is translated submit, and sometimes there's a corollary translation, be subject to, over 40 times in the Bible. And every time that it is used, it always speaks to how one relates to some aspect of leadership or authority that is to be yielded to. It may be government, it may be church leaders, it may be the law, God, righteousness, but the very nature of the word speaks to a leadership subordinate context. 
And so to interpret it as a mutual submission in marriage would be using the word in a way that it is used nowhere else in the Bible. Number two, to really understand what Paul's saying here, we would need to kind of follow his train of thought beyond this passage through chapter 6, verse 9. And we're not going to look at that, those other verses. I'll give you a little bit of taste of them, but uh, we're not going to cover that whole section. But, but here's kind of the gist. After calling for the believers in the Ephesian church to submit to one another, he then goes on to give three specific situations where they are to do that. Wives to husbands in verses 22 and 23. Children and parents in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And slaves and masters in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And in each one of these situations, the word submit is never used on the leadership authority side of these pairs. In other words, parents are not called to submit to or obey their children. Masters are not called to submit to or obey their slaves. And the word submit is only used for wives to husbands, not husbands to wives. And so to interpret this as mutual submission where you know, you would have to kind of conclude that parents are to submit to their children in the same way that their children are to submit to them. And that masters are to submit to their slaves in the same way that slaves were to submit to them. And that just wouldn't really make sense if you think about it. Number three. The marriage relationship in verses 23 and 24 is compared to the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again. Um, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So in verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now, Brendan talked about this a little bit last week, where he talked about that head can mean two different things. It can either mean kind of a leadership, responsibility, and authority, or it can mean source. And so, if you look at this passage, while you might be able to get away with using source to describe the relationship of Christ and the church, that Christ is the source of the church, yeah, I could see that. But when you take that and try to apply it to the idea of a husband being the source of his wife, that just doesn't seem to fit. Maybe you could say that about Adam originally, but I don't think I'm the source of my wife. And so the, using it in the context of source just doesn't seem to be something that fits this passage. So the implication is this is referring to a leadership kind of role and authority here. And then in verse 24, we see that a wife's submission is to be as the church submits to Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, does that picture work in reverse? 
In other words, does Jesus submit to the church? I don't think so. Uh, There's only one Lord of the church, and it it is in us. Um, And so this, again, mutual submission of both one submitting to the other just doesn't fit this picture. Number four, all the corollary passages in the New Testament all describe submission in the marriage relationship as something a wife is called to do in response to her husband's leadership. 1 Peter 3.1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Titus 2, 4 through 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And there are just no examples in Scripture of husbands being called to submit to their wives. They're just not there. Then lastly, number five, the meaning of the phrase to one another in verse 21. Now, that phrase can mean a situation where two people mutually do something back and forth between the two. In other words, let's say two of your kids are arguing, and you kind of say, stop that, be kind to one another right? So again, that's a mutual back and forth. You're calling both of them to be kind to each other. But often in the Bible, this phrase, it, it refers to people in a collective community doing something to others across the variety of relational contexts that exist in that community. In other words, let me explain. So maybe the Bible calls us, calls us to, which it does, it says comfort one another, right? It says serve one another. It says forgive one another. Well, that doesn't mean that, you know, you comfort me and I comfort you back, you know, that that's the way it works. You serve me and I serve you back. That's not the point. The point is that as we go about interacting with people in the church community, there are situations we encounter where comfort is the appropriate thing to do, where serving is the appropriate thing to do. If someone does something that offends us, forgiving is the appropriate thing to do. We even have an example of this in, in this very section in verse 19. Paul calls us to, to calls the church addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what is that? It's not where I have a psalm for you, you have a psalm for me, I have a hymn for you, you have a hymn for me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as we go about interacting with people in the church, there are times where it's appropriate to share a psalm with somebody, share a hymn with somebody, have a song for somebody. It's these different relational contexts that this one another is lived out. 
And that's exactly, I think, what's going on here in Ephesians 5, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. Paul is calling for those in the church community to submit to one another in the appropriate relational context within the church community where leadership or authority are relevant. Wives to their own husbands, children to their parents, slaves to their masters. And all three of these really relate to relationships in the households or families in the church community. That's typically where the slave-master relationship was. It was a household thing. And so in each one of these, he gives instructions to both those in leadership or authority and those in submission as to how they're to conduct themselves in these roles. I think that's what's going on here. Now, one thing I want to say is, because you need to be careful here, the nature of submission is not the same across these different contexts. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the way a wife is supposed to submit to her husband is the way a slave submits to their master or a child submits to their parents. That would not be true. Each of these situations have its, has its own unique dynamics, and what submission looks like in one is not necessarily what it looks like in another. But submission is not something wives are uniquely called to do to their husbands. Every Christian is called to submission to the leadership and authority structures that God has established. That's Paul's point in verse 21. All of us are called to submission to Christ, governing authorities, church leaders, employers, you know, different contexts that we find ourselves in where there's leadership responsibilities and roles. Yet the idea of submission in the marriage relationship has almost become an offensive idea to many people. But submission and leadership, they are part of God's wise design, if you will, to enable things to function harmoniously and effectively for the good of all. And you know, I think the problem in our day, what makes this challenging, is I think people just have a really hard time separating the concepts of value and significance and importance from the concepts of role and responsibility. We just, we just can't seem to separate those. If, if I have a, you know, some role and responsibility that's, that's a leadership role, then somehow that says I'm more important or more significant in some way. And I do think our culture kind of feeds this kind of idea, but I don't think that's the way God looks at these things at all. Um, roles don't speak to any greater or lesser value or worth in the way God sees them. I mean, just to give you an example, I think it's fair to say that each one of the tribes of Israel was equally significant and valuable and important to God, right? Yet God has no problem with saying to the Levites, I have given you a special responsibility. You and you alone will be the priests, and all the other tribes will yield to you as you carry out those functions. So God doesn't 
seem to have a problem distinguishing these things. I mean, if you want the ultimate example, just look at Jesus himself. I mean, who could be more infinitely valuable or worthy or significant, you know, in in essence and being than Jesus, yet willfully submitting to the Father in all things? So godly leadership and godly submission in a marriage, they've really been designed by God to display something about his Trinitarian glory where somehow you have this mysterious unity in the Godhead that is to be reflected in the unity in marriage, and yet at the same time you have different persons in that Godhead with distinct in role and function. And it is also a picture of the relationship with, between Jesus and his bride, the church, who by his saving work have now come to share in that Trinitarian glory as a part of it. And it is also intended to be a blessing to people that facilitates the harmonious functioning of the marriage relationship. So these roles, they are in no way intended to demean or diminish or elevate husbands or wives and the equality of their value in life or marriage. And really, Ephesians chapter 5, it gives us this beautiful picture of what that marriage relationship is to look like. Because here we see a husband's call to sacrificial, Christ-like servant leadership. Laying his life down for the good of his wife. Putting her interests and concerns above his own comfort and desires. Including her and involving her in the decisions of life. Valuing and seeking her counsel and input nourishing her to grow and develop into the person God has made her to be, encouraging and utilizing the gifts and skills God has given her to make the family stronger and be a blessing to others, cherishing her and valuing her as Jesus does his church. You know, when you look at this Ephesians 5 passage, the emphasis here is far more on the husband's responsibility to sacrificially love and care for his wife than it is on the wife's submission. See, leadership in the home, leadership in general in God's kingdom, is not primarily about exercising authority as much as it is about a responsibility before God to serve the good of others. And so godly servant leadership should make a wife's submission to her husband a safe, secure place to be. And we also see in this passage a picture of a wife's godly submission to her husband, trusting God to work in and through him to lead and care for his family, respecting him as God's designee to fulfill the role God has given him in the marriage and the home, seeking to encourage him, support him, be a blessing to him. And, you know, there's so much more that if we had time that could be said about just what living this out looks like. But there could not be a more beautiful picture 
that reflects God's Trinitarian glory and Christ's relationship with his church than when marriage reflects these verses. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, marriage is a little bit like this. If I could have that slide. It's kind of like this. You know, I wish I could have a better, more beautiful picture, but this is the best I could do here. Um, Two pieces, right? Both the same in substance and what they're made of and, and, you know, their, their value, their, their significance. They both make a critical contribution to this picture, but they're not the same. They each have their own unique contribution that they bring to make this picture whole. And this marriage picture, this is what marriage is like. It's two people coming together, each contributing the unique things that God has made them to be, and together they make this beautiful picture that by themselves, neither one of them can fully produce. And so what's the big idea from this message today? Well, it's this. The complementary roles in marriage are designed by God to reflect his glory and be a blessing to us. That, that's really what it boils down to. The complementary roles in marriage are designed by God to reflect his glory and be a blessing to us. So if I could have the band come and join me. Now, I, I do want to say this, because I am aware that this beautiful picture of what the marriage relationship should be in Ephesians 5, is often not the reality of our experience in marriage. Because sin and the fall, they, they, they have twisted and distorted our hearts and our relationships where this picture can seem distant or almost impossible in some marriages. And there are no perfect marriages. I mean, we are, we are all works in process in this area. And maybe you're sitting here thinking as I say these things, you, you just don't know my marriage. And you're, you're right, I probably don't. But I would be aware that when I look at this passage myself, I am immediately aware of the faults and shortcomings and failures on my part just to live this out in my own marriage relationship. And so I understand that, that we're all works in process but I do know this, the sacrificial love and grace that Jesus poured out on you and me when he saved us, when he died on a cross to pay for our sins, when we really should have been executed by him for our many wrongs, when he gave himself up for us, the love and grace that drew us to put our trust and faith in him as our Lord and Savior so that we might share in his eternal life. The love and grace that adopted us into God's family as his children and committed to never leaving us or forsaking us. The love and grace that is at work within us with all the power of God that was on display when he raised Jesus from the dead, that same love and grace working through the Holy Spirit is there to help us grow in our marriages.
And by his grace and power, we can move toward that picture in Ephesians 5 more and more as time goes by. If we will look to him to help us do that. If we trust him and seek to follow him just just one day at a time. And there could be no more worthy goal to pursue in our marriages. Because the more our marriages reflect that picture in Ephesians 5, the more they will both honor and glorify God, and the more they will be a blessing and a joy to us as well. So let's stand together and sing and call out to this God and ask him to, by his great grace and power, to work in us that our marriages whether they are current marriages or future marriages, that they might reflect his glory and that we might know the blessing of his intent and his beautiful design.